Two of the top commentators in compliance get together. They talk compliance, of course. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Two Gurus Talk Compliance, where I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Christy Grant Hart, as we talk compliance and review some of the other top commentators in compliance as well. We will consider all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG governance, and whatever else is on our minds or on the minds of other experts in our field. In this episode, we take a look at de-risking and decoupling from China, consider the various definitions of de-risking, look at FTX's former general counsel and what he's up to today, is honest services still a cause of action, and an appearance of Florida woman in this episode. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Welcome to the Two Gurus Talk Compliance Podcast with me, Christy Granthart. I am here, as always, with the one and only Tom Fox. And this week, we're covering a U.S. senator's bribery indictment, the meaning of the word de-risking and how it applies to China. We ponder what a judge throwing out FIFA's bribery convictions mean for FCPA prosecutions, and Florida woman borrows an alligator to put in her bathtub to celebrate her birthday. What? It is all coming up. But first... How has your week been, Tom? And what's the most interesting development? Well, the most interesting development for me was we had three inches of rain after a summer of no rain and the heat broke. So we had three straight days under 90. So that made for weather-wise and pleasantness-wise the most interesting thing. The insanity of the Trump indictments never ceases to amaze me, though. Fantastic. All right. Why don't we start with Bob Menendez? Yes. Senator Robert Menendez, senator of New Jersey, has been indicted on corruption charges. Uh, He is alleged to have received money specifically from the Egyptian government, money and other goods that we'll get into it a little bit, as um, for payment for passing along both confidential U.S. secrets and influencing uh, legislation as well. So obviously that's that's pretty serious stuff. The DOJ has taken to publishing pictures of what they find. And that's, uh, that's probably not new because we've seen pictures of drug bust or arms arrests. Uh, obviously the pictures from bathrooms of Mar-a-Lago where they were storing cop, cop classified and confidential information. But the one that got me was the gold bars. And he was apparently paid in gold bars. And, um, you know, he's innocent until proven guilty. But he's refused to resign, and he's now entered a not guilty plea. Um, I'm just stunned. Well, maybe I'm not, because he has been, he was, rather accused of corruption previously and went to trial and was found not guilty. So maybe he thinks he can um, get another not guilty verdict because it only takes one. Uh, The U.S. Supreme Court has significantly cut back on public corruption prosecutions where you literally have to show a quid pro quo. And maybe he believes that um, 
this Supreme Court with their rulings and the makeup of this Supreme Court would not hold a conviction. Um, but this this just seems to be absolutely horrific. The allegations of giving U.S. secrets to any foreign government is always very troubling to me. And when you have a U.S. senator uh, do so, we now have two congressmen indicted for fraud and corruption. One in the Senate, Menendez, and of course, everyone's friend, George Santos, over in the House. Amazing, yes. Um, And I can't ever think of a time where two sitting congressmen, both under indictment, both refused to resign. And it's la-di-da. I can't hear you, Jeffrey. I don't know. Uh, But this is pretty bad. I find it just worse than bad, just incredibly disturbing. And But Menendez says he's going to fight and he's not going to resign. So here we go. Here we go. I mean, it's not actually surprising if you've... uh... I, won't, I don't want to say gotten away with it because that says that the judicial system is inaccurate, but he's already had to do this once. So, I mean, I think fighting makes a lot of sense, but my goodness. But Tom, don't a lot of your clients pay you in gold bars? Isn't that normal? Well, you know, the funny thing is Costco sold out of all their gold bars after this story came out because everyone recognized what a great investment gold is. Gold doesn't go down. It's it's just a great investment. And, you know, the, the gold bars that I have laying around the house or other places. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great, it's just an investment. It's just an investment, right? Okay. Well, let's move from gold as an investment to real estate. Now, I, I have to say that this reminder, this is not a financial services podcast. So do not take our financial advice when it comes to gold and or real estate as it relates to corruption or any other thing, as we say. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about is the Wall Street Journal's article entitled SEC Fines Real Estate from CBRE Over Violations of Whistleblower Protections. So CBRE settled for $375,000 with the SEC. Why? Because when employees were leaving the company with separation pay, They were required to sign a release attesting that they hadn't filed a complaint against the company with any federal agency. Okay, so at least 884 employees signed the agreement, which was standard for the company between 2011 and 2022. So the SEC was upset because Rule 21F-17 of the Dodd-Frank Act prohibits actions that would impede an individual from communicating directly with the SEC about security law violations. And interestingly, this actually follows a trend. So recently, the SEC has been focusing on this separation agreement issue. Anything that stifles employees or formal former employees from turning the company in. So last month, a privately owned energy and technology company was fined $225,000 for using employee separation agreements, requiring certain departing employees to waive their right to monetary whistleblower awards if they filed a claim or participated in an investigation by federal agencies. How? In its defense, going back to CBRE, CBRE stated that their agreement, quote, included language that has long been the standard in release agreements for many companies, unquote, otherwise known as the everybody's doing it excuse. So to CBRE's credit, the SEC touted strong cooperation and remediation and 
and CBRE is including an audit of similar agreements worldwide. So Tom, I picked this because I found these provisions so chilling. I mean, how do you tell an employee not to participate in a federal investigation if they want to keep their separation money? I mean, that's not CBRE, that's the other one. But honestly, and you know, California is spending so much time and attention on this as well as the SEC, right? We're not allowing settlement agreements for sexual harassment to include a gag clause. And regulators are going after those non-competes very aggressively. So it seems like there's just a lot of attention to this anti-whistleblowing, anti-gag language. How do you think employers should respond to this series of events regarding settlement agreements? See, this is, reminds me of an earlier conversation we had on another topic. I think it was gifts, travel, and entertainment. Hey, guys, the rules have been known for a long, long time. This is not difficult. It's a no-brainer. Uh, I think it was 2016 when we had the first pretaliation suit. Uh, we're seven years after that. Everyone knows you can't do this. Everyone. And for a company to do so almost raises it to the level of willing violation, certainly intentional violation. But um, it's very, very simple. You do, You cannot prevent employees or you can't punish them. They can't lose anything. If they're going to turn over to governmental authorities evidence of criminal activities or activities that violate regulatory frameworks, they're protected. And you can't punish them for that even after they've left your employment. So I guess I was just sort of stunned at this. And um, this has just been around for so long. Hey, guys, it's real simple. And and even in the first pretaliation suit, the SEC put in three sentences that they approved that you can use. So you can even use the approved SEC language. Um, you can have all the non-disclosure language you want, and you can exempt out government authorities, criminal activity, or regulatory violations brought in good faith. Um so I, I I moved this one to more of the disgusted category. <laughs> Especially that one where you can't participate in federal investigations, not CBRE. Shall we move into the first of a couple of discussions about this new term de-risking? Tell us about this, Tom. Sure. So this comes to us from the Financial Times, and um, it really follows a series of, of discussions the FT has been having. And and the Wall Street Journal, New York Times. I did a podcast series on this. But what are what's the business response, Christy, to the coming conflict with China or the current competition with China? We can leave aside our respective governments and what may happen, and we both want cool, cooler heads to prevail. But businesses have real challenges. We've talked about on this podcast service particularly due diligence providers being harassed in China. We had the arrests um, of several different of, against several different companies. We had numerous raids, but that's just the compliance sort of due diligence angle. There's a whole different world out there in procurement and supply chain. There's a whole other different world out there in, as a customer base. The largest customer for the U.S lumber industry is China. Well, what are you going to do if your largest customer is now no longer available to you because of 
conflict or China's policy of China for China, which says we, China, deem it in our interest to source locally. What's wrong with that? Um, So in many ways, the world has shifted and businesses need to find a way to decouple and de-risk. If you're going to stay there, you need to try to lessen your risk. But I would advocate a more robust strategy of you need to be ready to decouple. And um, the U.S. lumber industry, they need to be ready to shift their market. Well, they say, well, Tom, how are we going to get that market share? Why why don't you build new houses in the U.S. um, and help alleviate the housing crisis? And literally every city from where I live of 20,000 to where you live in Los Angeles, Christy, you know, that's a major crisis for the U.S. If we use that lumber to build houses. And that's just me thinking of something. So if you're a supply chain, obviously the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act is front of mind for clothing manufacturers, but a large variety of others. Chips Act, Silicon Chips is another area. So it's a wide variety of issues. And I hope that people are thinking on the tactical level which is that how do we do due diligence? That's the de-risking. But how are you going to decouple it? Uh, and in every crisis, there's an opportunity. So there may be an opportunity for your business you're not considering. So I'm trying to highlight as many of these, use these terms, think about them, talk about them in your trade groups. Uh, next week, I'm uh, chairing a procurement and compliance conference, and we're going to talk about these Issues there for supply chain professionals and procurement professionals. How are you going to resource, desource, or uh, uh, bring the goods into the United States? So it's a conversation, I hope, Christy, lots of people are having. I know it's a big conversation in the compliance community where we're at the de-risking part, but we maybe need to move to the decoupling part sooner rather than later. One of the things that I'm seeing that's really interesting is in some of our client relationships where they have suppliers, not just suppliers in China, but some of them have their own factories and things where they are moving to other parts of Asia or some of the, even the Chinese manufacturing is moving to Vietnam and to Indonesia and some of the other countries. Obviously, some of that is for lower cost-based labor, but some of it also probably is just to manage the risk of the U.S. and Chinese uh, relationship going sour. So really interesting to watch this. I definitely agree with you, Tom, and and people do need to have some contingency plans and have compliance in the middle of those conversations. It's really important. All right, FTC. Knock on Lena Khan. She's got a reputation and she's making it bigger every day. My goodness. So this article is also from the Wall Street Journal and it's titled FTC names three Amazon executives in suit over prime. So the Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, filed a lawsuit back in June against Amazon. And now the STC has recently disclosed new details, naming three executives they allege played a key role in a scheme to enroll customers unwittingly into the company's prime program, then making it difficult to cancel their subscriptions. So Amazon is vociferously defending itself, stating that, in fact, it is easy to cancel a prime subscription. Amazon might have a little better sounding defense if it hadn't codenamed the complicated cancellation system Iliad, 
which is after the Greek work by the poet Homer, because Iliad is notoriously hard to read and understand. I am certain this is just a coincidence. Emails unearthed by the FTC include quotes by one of the executives responding to public pressure with the question, quote, given how hot this topic is in the press lately and the risk of regulatory action in some countries, I'm wondering how you might thread the needle between making it easy to join, easy to not mistakenly join, and not unduly difficult to unsubscribe, unquote. Probably something they should have thought about before. The Wall Street Journal notes that the updated lawsuit comes as the FTC is preparing to file a monopoly lawsuit against Amazon for anti-competitive practices. And this lawsuit will suggest that Amazon make, quote, structural remedies, unquote, that could lead to a breakup of the company. So, Tom, I don't know about you. I do have an Amazon Prime account by choice. I like it very much but it's easy to understand why this FTC is so concerned. I mean, there are so many services that make cancellation difficult and time-consuming. I have definitely spent time trying not to swear, looking through websites to figure out how to unsubscribe or call somebody who doesn't want to talk to me either to get out of some ridiculous payment. Do you think this will be the start of a trend? Will we see more enforcement actions like this where consumers are just frustrated as get out and somebody's paying attention to that? Well, it's refreshing to see someone is paying attention to that. I probably would have started with one of the more egregious companies like cable companies or phone companies and not Amazon, but you want to make a big splash? What the heck? Go after Amazon. Um, and naming the executives, um, I'm not quite sure how I feel about that, but it makes certainly makes me uneasy. Um, so Lena Khan is very aggressive. And she has made stands on many different issues um, and will continue to do so. I'm like you. I'm a proud user of Amazon Prime and whatever abuse they may be doing to me, I'm willing to accept it. <laughs> the the ease of using <laughs> Amazon. So uh, anyway, I just think it, it uh, businesses need to understand the FTC and this administration is going to be a player. They have been and they will be, and they need the FTC separate and apart from the SEC or some of those agencies will bring its own actions. And this demonstrates that once again. And whatever you may think or not think about Chairperson Lena Khan, she's going to be aggressive and that you need to be ready for that if you're in the general counsel's office or you're in the compliance office. I thought I thought also that that naming the executives was really interesting to me, especially looking at some of the quotes, ignoring the Iliad piece, because that's that's its own thing. But naming them specifically, some of their some of their quotes really from the emails seem like business judgment rule sort of things where, you know, illegal activity versus making plans to try to help people to try a service. I mean, I think you're going to I think she's may struggle in trying to make that case. It'll be interesting to see. Indeed. So we go from Amazon to the gift that keeps on giving, Deutsche Bank. Oh, Deutsche. And, oh, Deutsche. And Deutsche Bank continues to draw about as many fines and penalties as any organization east of Wells Fargo I can think of. And this time, their investment arm agreed to pay $25 million to settle allegations that it overstated how it used ESG factors in its funds. This story comes to us from our friend Mingi Sun at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. 
Um, I don't know how many fines and penalties this has been against Deutsche Bank, but it doesn't surprise me one iota. And I think, I guess the message I would like to try to drive home from this story, Christy, is it it's all about culture. Uh, they obviously have a culture of either kicking dirt on the lines, bending the rules, or something else at Deutsche Bank. And this is one more example of that. But with regards to the specificity of the enforcement actions, the SEC is is demonstrating that they will uh, bring an enforcement action for companies who overstate how they use the factor in their funds. Probably the next step is overstatement of ESG factors in a 10K or a AQ um, that would mislead investors. And I think it's something that once again, every compliance professional, every general counsel, and every corporate secretary needs to be aware of. This one was so interesting to me, Tom. I mean, I think seeing the whole greenwashing come home to roost is really interesting. I, I think there are far too many companies that see, still genuinely see this as a marketing opportunity, as opposed to an opportunity to either make a difference or to tell their true story. I found it interesting in this article where the SEC took real interest and real anger with the phrase, we placed ESG at the heart of everything we do. I mean, I think there is an argument that that's kind of mere puffery, as you would say, under the law. But I think that they found it to be materially misleading. So watch what you say in that ESG space. It's it's definitely of interest to the SEC. All right. Shall we go to the, uh, <laughs> from, from the sublime to the questionable indeed? I think okay. you're questionable label may indeed be questionable. Questionable indeed. All right, here we go. So my next story comes courtesy of our dear friend, Matt Kelly. Hello, Matt. He recommended that we cover it, sent us an email, by the way, if you think there's something we should cover, you can always send us an email as well. It's from law.com and it's titled XFTX GC launches law firm says his hugely disappointing experience will be an asset for clients. So lest we forget, FTX is the bankrupt company that formerly operated a cryptocurrency exchange and a crypto hedge fund led by the remarkable Sam Bankman-Fried, also known to his friends and the public at large as SBF. So Ryan Miller is the former general counsel at FTX. He left four months after XTF, FTX went bankrupt. He has now started Miller Strategic Partners, which will advise on digital assets and blockchain companies, and he'll be advising financial firms on regulation, regulatory investigation, and crisis management. So he certainly got experience in managing crises. He was in the trenches during the implosion at FTX. So he was there for 18 months, 14 of them before the bankruptcy filing for afterward. FTX, let's remember, abruptly collapsed due to what was called, quote, a complete failure of corporate controls, unquote, according to corporate turnaround expert John J. Ray. Now, to give him his due, honestly, when I, I didn't realize his pedigree was so impressive. So before he joined FTX, he was a partner at the prestigious law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell and worked for three years at the U.S. Commodity Future Trading Commissioner, CFTC. So Miller described the collapse of FTX as, and I'm quoting, a hugely disappointing experience, unquote, indeed. But he's got a very positive spin on this. He says his experience in this thrasher was, quote, very much an asset, unquote, for his clients. All righty then. So, Tom, 
We have talked about the former chief compliance officer at FTX, and he was there at the same time. So Daniel Friedberg, who we've talked about previously, was the CCO who has been accused of bribing whistleblowers and setting up fake shell companies for FTX. So there's some interesting history here. What do you think? Um, Once again, if I had told you this story, you would have said you made that up. No one's that stupid. Um, no one's no one would do something like this. So I guess I was thinking of the the famous movie slash video of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge that failed in the windstorm that everyone has seen. Yeah, that's the guy I want engineering my bridge. Um it's just I I've had the most massive failure in the history of crypto, but I learned a lot. Um, it's an asset. Uh, it's an crypto is an asset, and so is my experience in the crypto hedge fund. Uh, the worst. Once again, no financial advice here. No, none about gold bars. None about real estate. None about crypto. Just saying. I'll say, don't buy crypto. I'll, I'll go out on that limb. The <laughs> um, you know the internal control failures, the allegations of bribes paid into China. Um, I, I just. When this story came out, and maybe when all you got is failure, you have market failure. So maybe there's a marketing lesson for you and I here. Play to your strength. But it's, it, I guess it also reminds me, since it's a lawyer of the, the lawyer who asked Chat GPT to write his brief and then didn't read it and signed it. Oops. Um, you know, Lawyers, we're supposed to be smarter and better and think better or think more. And this one just, this is unbelievable that he would market himself on his failures. Um, so, yeah, if you told this story to someone, they would just say, you made that up. <laughs> well, words are powerful. Words matter. And Tom, I think you want to talk about multiple meanings of this whole de-risking China thing now, right? Well. Yeah. So this is really our second story about de-risking, but we're going to take it in a little bit different direction. And Dick Casson wrote an article for the FCPA blog. Dick, of course, is the editor emeritus, having founded it, um, now run by Harry Casson. But de-risking has multiple meanings. And this turns out to be uh, one of a series of blog post Dick has written and is writing about compliance terms that have multiple meanings. And when I first thought this, I thought, you know, why would you need to worry about this? But the more I thought about it, and of course, read it several times in preparation for this podcast, this is exactly something that we as compliance professionals need to uh, think about because we communicate through language and the written word, and typically we're communicating across the world. And similar, same words can have different meanings. Similar words can have different meanings across the globe. Whether the word is different, whether the cultural backdrop interpreting that word is different or others. So I thought upon reflection, I found this a very welcome blog post to um, talk about. And here with the word, specifically the word de-risking, Dick listed three possible 
or at least still acceptable meanings. One is to reduce, remove, or eliminate risk. Two is to terminate or restrict business relations with clients or categories of clients to avoid rather than manage the risk. And third is uh, to disconnect enough to reduce the a threat or a risk. So if you think about those three words or those three definitions, and you go back to my discussion about the FT article, about decoupling from China, I think you will see or hear, you're listening to this podcast, I used all of these definitions literally interchangeably. So it can mean, I have multiple meanings and you need to be as clear as you can in using words and terminology that your listener may have an equally valid definition of de-risking than Tom Fox does. We want to make sure we're talking about the same thing. I, I tell you, I had never thought about this as having different meanings. And if you are talking using the same word, but not meaning the same thing in your business, you have problems. So I recommend everyone read this because it's incredibly useful to consider that there are different meanings for this word that compliance officers would simply associate with risk mitigation. And if it's not being used that way, you need to know it. And it's just incredibly important. So of things that you should be reading... The next one is Adam Balfour's new book. So it is called Ethics and Compliance for Humans. And Tom, it has been books a go-go in the compliance field this fall. So in addition to your fabulous new children's book, which we love, and Mary Shirley's new book, Adam just published his book, Ethics and Compliance for Humans. So I've done, look at this book. We're doing a, a blog with him and it's really aimed squarely at compliance professionals trying to either start or improve their compliance program. And its focus is to focus on, this is crazy, humans, humans instead of automatrons. So it's focused on how people think and feel instead of legal themes. It covers some fun areas like compliance branding, including 12 negative brand perceptions and how to address them when it comes to compliance. And I really like his tone. It's very relatable. It's easy. There's a chapter called policies humans won't hate, things like that. So it also covers difficult topics like incentives. And maybe my favorite chapter, sometimes compliance is awkward. So it's definitely not an omnibus book about creating the perfect compliance program. And if you want one of those, call Tom Fox. He's got a really good one. Rather, it is a kind of a series of tips and anecdotes focused on advice on important topics like training and working effectively with leadership. So any book with a list of movies and TV shows that inspire compliance-related discussions is good with me. It's published by Corporate Compliance Insights. It's available on Amazon and highly recommended. Man, there's lots of good books coming out, isn't it? It's really neat. You know... I've heard a little birdie say, you might have a book coming out. I, I might have a book coming out. I might. It's on November 30th called Your Year as a Wildly Effective Compliance Officer. I'm sure we'll talk about it more later, but I'm really, I'm excited that there's so much authorship. There just wasn't for so long or, you know, it was really you, Tom, and some of the SEC publications, but now we're really, we're on a roll and it's exciting. And, and I absolutely want to equal that or at least build upon that because having all of us write about our experiences only benefits the profession. Uh, remember someone called me after Mary's book came out because he saw I had written a, a review of it. And he said, look, should I buy this? And I said, listen, 
It's not that Mary Shirley wrote a book. It's that Mary Shirley's perspective is different than yours. Hmm. Obviously, she's a New Zealander. Obviously, she's not our age. Obviously, she's had a different career path. And all of those make up Mary. And so for that reason alone, and Adam, a Scotsman living in the United States, went to Harvard Law School. I don't have any of those characteristics. And I was privileged this, actually yesterday, Adam was on a webinar at my local compliance and ethics group in San Antonio. And so we got to hear about the book and the stories he relates. And you're absolutely right. It's incredibly relatable, very pop culture reference, just like Adam. And it's like reading, except it's like listening to Adam talk, except you're reading it. And so the more of those of us that write, the more all of us can get different ideas and different approaches because we're all different and we all do things a little bit differently. And I've seen Adam speak a couple of times about uh, how he uses movies in his corporate training at Bridgestone Firestone. So um, it's, you're absolutely great. Excuse me. Absolutely right. This is great to have uh, as many different perspectives coming forward to write books. I'm going to shout out to Corporate Compliance Insights mm-hmm. for publishing this. Sarah Haddon is a great part of our compliance community in um, her website, Corporate Compliance Insights and everything she does. She hosts, she's a co-producer of the Great Women in Compliance podcast, and she hosts it there in addition to my site. So um, it's really a book very usable, very readable. Shout out to Adam for taking the time to write it. And you're absolutely right. Uh, We as a group are on a roll with some books. And uh, I don't know if someone's coming out with a book between now and when yours comes out or what might be coming after yours, but I can't wait. Matt Silverman coming out with one on Compliance Champions Networks. There we go. Oh, and that's out Next week, I think. I think so. Yeah. It's kind of, I think yeah. they're doing a lunch party next week in Chicago. So they're, right. I, it's on a roll. There we go. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. So, next, I want to talk about a case adjacent to our space that drew a lot of attention, very high profile when it happened. 2015 was the year of US raids on FIFA. And U.S. trying to fight the endemic corruption uh, in FIFA. Most of the raids and enforcement actions were outside the United States. But we had a couple of cases inside the United States. And in one of those, there was a conviction of a TV representative, I believe from Fox Sports, who had alleged, well, I guess he was found guilty of paying bribes to get TV contracts. After the conviction, the but before sentencing, the court vacated the judgments, holding that the federal honest service statutes does not cover foreign commercial bribery in light of recent Supreme Court precedent. That Supreme Court precedent came to us in two cases in the most recent term, which concluded in June, on June 30. Simonelli and Percoco. And in both of those cases, the Supreme Court held that honest service and mail fraud cases have to have been a part of the honest service doctrine 
as it stood in 1987. And the significance there is there was a big Supreme Court case called McNally uh, that held that those statutes were limited to protecting property. This Supreme Court has taken the position, unfortunately, on a host of issues that said you can only act based upon what the law was at the time the law or even constitutional amendment was enacted. So we can't have any gun regulations because, hey, there weren't gun regulations in 1787. Yeah. But they've now extended that to just regular statutes. What this means for FCPA, though, Christy, is I'm not sure on reflection it's that big a deal because the FCPA does not apply to commercial bribery outside the United States. And so um, to get this conviction, they had to require on honest services. I believe, I hate the honest service doctrine. It basically seems to me that it's something from medieval law that you owe the Lord service and you owe him honest service. Well, if you don't give honest service, I think the next step is called termination. So I don't think people should be sued over that. But my eccentricity on this point aside, I don't think it's going to mean a lot for FCPA uh, violations. There's another way the DOJ can get to private commercial bribery, and that's through the Travel Act. That requires crossing of a um, state line for illegality to attach. If you stay in California, don't leave California and you pay bribes, travel act doesn't apply and the FCPA doesn't apply if it's private bribery. So this is clearly a setback for U.S. prosecutors. This Supreme Court really is almost antithetical to prosecuting for bribery and corruption. We talked about that a little bit in the piece on Bob Mendez. Uh, This decision, though, uh, the two U.S. Supreme Court cases were U.S centric New York state cases where the bribes were paid to New York state government officials. And that wasn't enough to get them there. And now it's not enough to get the Fox, former Fox sports exec who paid bribes to get TV contracts in Latin America. Yeah. It's very complicated. This whole thing is very complicated. I'm reading the article and you know, I'm a lawyer and I went, Woo, there's a lot of stuff going on in this article. So I think there's a whole lot of confusion there. But anything that weakens our ability to prosecute briberies is not good. But let's so you're saying California, California, California. I'm gonna move not personally, huh? To Florida, Florida, Florida. <laughs> Not personally to Florida. I'm afraid of being a Florida woman. But I like Florida women, but this Florida woman in particular is a very interesting one. So what would we be if we weren't finishing with Florida? And it's, again, the gift that keeps on giving our good friend, Florida woman. So this Florida woman was arrested recently in Orange County, Florida, not California, where I live, for stealing an alligator and keeping it in her hotel bathroom. Now, she would take issue with the word steal and replace it with the word borrow. She borrowed the alligator. See, her name, Madison Stefan, age 26, had gone to the Grove Resort and Water Park to celebrate her birthday with her friend. And Miss Stefan used to work at an attraction 
offsite called Croc Encounters. And indeed, she still had keys to that building. So while she was staying at the fancy resort, Stephen woke up early, used her keys to break into Croc Encounters and stole a juvenile alligator. She took it back to her hotel room, told her friend excitedly that she had a great birthday surprise, which was an alligator in the bathtub. Who doesn't want that for their birthday? The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission arrested Miss Stephen and issued a notice for her to appear for the possession of said reptile. Luckily for Miss Stephen, her former boss declined to prosecute for theft or trespassing. Perhaps he was convinced by her alligator tears. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lord, well done. Thank you very much. So. Well, another great uh, episode, Christy. I can't wait to see what next time brings us. I'm Tom Fox. I'm Christy Granhart. Thanks for joining us. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this as much as Christy and I did recording it and bringing it to you. If you have a question or article you would like, Christy or I to look at for an upcoming episode, please email us or you could link to us uh, or send us an IM through LinkedIn. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.